I'm Ruth Barnes, and this is Dare to Try, a Tata podcast about entrepreneurs who've risked it all to follow their dream. Overcoming failure, the pressures of teamwork, and the all-important fundraising are just some of the stories we've heard in this series. If you've just found us, please do go back and listen to them all. And don't forget your ratings and reviews on iTunes if you're enjoying the series. In this episode, we talk to Emily Brooke, who founded Blaze. Emily's business idea is close to my heart. Being a cyclist in London, you put your life on the line daily, and anything that makes it safer to get around deserves all the investment in my book. How about projecting a bright green LED bike in front of you as you pedal along to let trucks, buses and drivers know you're coming? This is the idea that launched Blaze in 2012. Through crowdfunding and investment, Blazer's funding hit £1 million in 2015, when they also partnered with Santander and Transport for London to provide the Santander cycles with their laser lights. This has allowed the company to go to the next level and expand further. So, Emily, welcome to Dare to Try. Mm -hmm, Thank you. Can you take me back to the moment on your bike? I love this idea of you cycling yourself somewhere. Where were you and what made you think this is not good enough, I need to do something about this. So I was in Brighton, I was studying. I'd never been on a bike as an adult that year, but decided to cycle the length of the UK for charity. So bought a bike with a girlfriend and learnt to, I mean, I literally learnt to ride as in, learnt to take hands off handlebars and reach a bottle of water without falling off, learnt to ride a bike. And trained for four months and fell in love with cycling and spent 12 days cycling from the tip of Cornwall to the tip of Scotland. And then the week the ride finished was the same week my final year of product design started. I was reading physics at Oxford University and then dropped out to go do design in Brighton, which was Sounds good. much more fun. And I was about to embark on my final year and had to design a project from start to finish. And I gave myself a theme, urban cycling, because I just spent the summer on a bike in the countryside, which was lovely and relaxing and happy and peaceful. But the cities were exhausting and stressful. So I wanted to identify and tackle the biggest problem for city cyclists. And it's safety. I spent six months of research and analysis with a driving psychologist who analyses accidents, which is quite quite dark. I was going to say that must have been an intense six months. It was fascinating, actually. It was really interesting. And, and lots of data analysis on the accidents and, and what most commonly happens and why. And there's one statistic in all of that which amazed me and still does today, and that is that 79% of bicycles that are involved in an accident are travelling straight ahead and somebody else turns into them. So that's the one we all know, which is the blind spot. A vehicle just in front, turns across your path. And the second one is a vehicle pulls out of a side junction just in front of the bike. And I was literally biking around town, I can remember, in Brighton, towards the seafront and thinking about this exact problem and realising that a white van just in front of me couldn't see me. And if he suddenly swung for no reason, I'd I'd be squished. Um, So wished I had a a virtual me, a virtual presence travelling ahead of me to warn him I was coming. Oh, project myself there. That was... That's amazing. Project yourself there, literally onto the road. Well, actually, if I'm completely honest, the the original concept was a hologram. It was going to be a 3D me travelling through space, but (laughs) technology's not quite there, so it was was a projection. Do you think you'll ever get there? (laughs) We're working on it. I love it. I love that the hologram is still a thing. That will happen. The hologram, it has to be you, I think. Super cool. Yeah, great. (laughs) Slash terrifying. Amazing. Yes, exactly. Like, wow. Uh, I cycle in London. I also drive in London, and I think it's given me a huge perspective as a cyclist knowing what drivers are like because I'm a driver in this city and I know what the drivers are like so I cycle as if I'm expecting everyone to be a bad driver around me which means I cycle really safely because I'm always waiting for that car that's going to pop out or that person who's going to turn left who hasn't seen me but there are so many cyclists who have just got on their brand new little bike and they're just toddling off down the road and they're just not 
equipped, really, for city cycling. No, the, and the, the empathy piece is so strong. The empathy piece of, of actually understanding the other, other perspective. Um, they do a lot of exchanging places often where they get the big vehicles parked up on the side of the road. And if you ever cycle past on a commute, I recommend getting out and sitting in the cab of an enormous truck and experiencing what the blind spot is like. I mean, it's you can park you know, sort of like 15 cycles along the, the inside of a big vehicle and, and you just can't see them. So putting yourself in the perspective of the drivers is, is really valuable. But it must be horrific to be a driver of any vehicle coming into London in the infrastructure that we've got in the busy roads and surrounded by all sorts of moving objects. It's um, anything to help them, a cyclist or more vulnerable road users, be more visible. So you you mentioned there very very briefly that you'd left physics in Oxford to do product design in Brighton. A big change, a big move. Must have been quite a lot of upheaval there for you in, in your life. Then you're on this bike in Brighton thinking, this is going to be my product. What do you think made Blaze different that actually you succeeded? You, you made it. You got beyond the idea phase. And were you were you scared because it was obviously... A huge leap, like you'd already taken a big leap. Yeah. And this was another big one. To answer your first question, the idea itself, it is quite unusual, I think, to find a radical innovation. You quite often see an incremental, you see a step on from something that's previously been done. But this idea was crazy enough and mad enough to be, it is a radically new innovation. And I think that served us well. That kind of thing people talk about a lot. You know, we got a little bit of press in the early days and it's kind of, it's an exciting innovation and that's that's definitely has carried us and it's, um, it makes sense as well. People see it and go, why hasn't that been done before? Which is something that we hear quite often. And as far as the leap, it kind of, it took me, after my final year project, I mean, I patented it while I was at university, it was my exhibition that week. And then by the end of the week, it was in every Cycling blog in the UK is a concept, and in the Sydney Morning Herald brand of the week, and kind of thought, sugar, this is something that you know maybe <laughs> I'm not the only one who thinks this might be a good idea. Then it took me a year to commit to it, so that was kind of like a year of I mean I've never had a job before, let alone started a business. So it took me a year to get the confidence. Right, right, actually, I can't leave this alone. I have to be doing this. Off I go. That's amazing, isn't it? Because I don't think you you that that's quite a unique experience to put something out there and then to have that incredible reaction immediately before you're even ready mentally to to kind of undertake what it would totally, take yeah. to see it through. And I hadn't even thought of starting a business. Actually, the university sent me to Massachusetts on an entrepreneurial scholarship in Babson, at Babson College, and it was that was the first time I'd really heard. I remember actually, I remember replying and checking I could spell the word entrepreneur correctly because it wasn't just wasn't discussed it wasn't discussed at school or university and to other kids in the course it was a sponsored program and lots of Latin American South American students and I was the only Brit um, I know one other sorry to them entrepreneurship meant something completely different there's a guy on the course who was 24 he ran four businesses a t-shirt printing company a tetra pack roofing recycling materials company for slums and a chain of men's only beauty spas or whatever and I was a student and I was like that's incredible how do you do it he kind of looked at me and kind of goes what you know someone's got to pay the bills like build it start it I go wow I'm why aren't I I'm you know I had this crazy good idea and I'm very fortunate why shouldn't I go home and do it myself so I did okay so that year then that you said you were kind of dealing with the fact that you had to then start a business and, and make this a reality were you ever in that year worried that this wasn't going to work out? Did you have lows? Did you think that it might fail? Constant roller coaster. It's a constant roller coaster, and every entrepreneur will say that. Every incredibly high highs, incredibly low lows, and literally it's not one day to the next. It's kind of one 20 minutes to the next 20 minutes. You think you're taking over the world, and the next it's all coming crashing down. But I never thought I'd stop. It was always a road bump, not 
a dead end. So, for example, you know, pushing the button on manufacturing in our first week of doing that, our laser supplier reneged on their price they offered us, making the entire business completely unaffordable. And it was kind of like, right, how do I get to Japan and negotiate with them? How do I figure this out? How do I never kind of like, right, it's all over. Did you go to Japan? Uh, No, it was a kind of a bombardment of emails and calls. And Professor Wang Nang Wang, who's an optical expert I was working with on the ground to help sort it out. But (laughs) he sounds great. He's awesome. Thank God. So what mistakes did you make then that became important lessons? Lots of mistakes. Um, I mean, the first one was probably just to get on with it. That year, I think I was terrified. I spent a lot of the time thinking, is this the right way? Is that the right way? How do I find the right way? Who who can I ask to tell me this is the right way or that? And ultimately, it took me a year to realise that there are many ways to do it, you know, many ways to skin a cat or creature and ultimately getting on with it and doing you'll get so much further and learn so much more than thinking about and planning to do it so crack on that was my first lesson did you have support from your family did they all think you were mad they think I'm definitely mad yeah but they are also incredibly my mum bless her I think I could hire her for my marketing for the southwest of England (laughs) she we call her mama blaze she comes into the office and the team love her (laughs) she's completely crazy they're very proud they think it's crazy but they're very proud that you've done something yourself. You're an entrepreneur. Are there any other entrepreneurs in your family? My mum was definitely a very savvy businesswoman. She worked hard and she built our everything. That's why she's looking at you and thinking, yeah, that's it. That's my kid. That's my girl. (laughs) We can never have too much great advice. Let's take a moment to hear some more about finding and exploiting your niche. I'm David Landsman. I'm the executive director of Tata Limited, the company which represents the Tata Group across Europe. Well, let's think about how you take business decisions, whether they're big ones or small ones. Here's an example. When Tata acquired Jaguar Land Rover in 2008, there's no doubt that the business had been through some very difficult times. But Mr Ratan Tata believed that its potential was far greater than its current performance because of its heritage, because of the design and engineering which went into the cars, and above all, because of its people. And Jaguar Land Rover's success since then, I think we can agree, has more than justified the investment and Mr Tata's confidence in it. And I think it's the same principle precisely which applies when you're looking for startups, just as I've been doing over the past few years when I've been a judge at the NAC Uvarsity pitch. To start with, there's obviously got to be a good idea at the heart of it, a product or a service which is the answer to a real need from the consumer or of society more widely. And obviously there's got to be a business plan and one in which you can stand up your numbers. If you're going to say, for example, that you expect 50% growth in each of the next five years, you've got to be able to explain why that's a reasonable thing to say. But more important than all that, whether you want to buy a big company or find the winner of the next pitching competition, you need to start by looking for people with real potential to take their ideas forward. Emily, who do you look to for advice? Is it your mum? Is it Mama Blaze? Mama Blaze. Uh, now, when I get home, I can't just not talk about Blaze. <laughs> just go and veg out and sit on the sofa and just be just be mute for a while. No, who do I look for advice? My team. We're a bunch of kids having a lot of fun in East London figuring it out. And we've got incredible support and directors and board and all that. But actually, we're pretty informal. There's a bunch of people in my network who I'll pick up the phone for specific things. But ultimately, it's kind of bouncing ideas off each other. We've got pretty light-touch investors, so we can we really have the headroom to kind of run run at things, which is pretty cool. And 
depending on the problem. But you you learn in, by asking questions. I mean, one of my mum's motto, you don't get if you don't ask. And certainly I got very far in the first few years just asking as many questions as I could for anybody and anybody I could get my hands on. So depending on the question, depending on the person, I guess. To what extent is it necessary to step back from a project when things are getting tough to kind of just go, actually, I need to just walk away for a bit? So important. Right. I often just walk around the block. <laughs> I can walk around the block. Yeah, really, really important because you do get sucked into it. And I've actually, there's times gone on, I've been really, really lucky because the team is so brilliant and they've empowered to do so much themselves and I'm not in the detail myself anymore, which is fantastic. In the early days, I was everything. Do you um, just walk around now going, pink, make it pink? I just cause chaos. <laughs> I, I'm, God only knows what I do, not very much other than causing chaos. They are so much better at everything they've been hired to do than I could ever pretend to be, so empower them to, to build it. But yeah, it's very important to take perspective and also get perspective on where we're at and what we've done and what we're achieving because that's we're bad at that. It's very easy to keep pushing and running on to the next thing. And you should really remember to take stock. So we started a bit of a tradition where I won, a, I won some silly award at one point and, and we got sent some bottles of champagne. And we now have a thing where if there's any excuse, any excuse, because we'll find some bubbles somewhere and pop them. I think we have some partners who come to the office and be like, you guys are always drinking champagne. <laughs> it's like, well, it's just karma, but it's fun. <laughs> it's important to, to, to acknowledge the good bits. How did you find Phil? How did you guys become co-founders? So he I hired um, about 18 months in, I think. I was looking for an operations manager. I was looking for somebody who'd been a big part of a small business that I could learn from. I'd never had a job before, so there's plenty I had to learn. Um, and I wanted somebody with a bit of experience. I had some amazing applicants. One guy who'd built and sold nine companies and had been a professional cyclist in some country, somewhere. Yikes, that's kind of terrifying. Um, amazing. <laughs> And then I think they'll apply through a platform called Escape the City. And it was most kind of platonic gut reaction to, yeah, you're great. I really want you upstairs helping me run my company right now. I quickly made him COO and then co-founder. And yeah, he's my best mate now and very lucky. We are very different, which is why I think it works so well. Yeah, I cause the chaos and he actually gets it done. <laughs> that sounds great. It sounds perfect. You need someone like that in your life. Well done. What keeps you motivated then, sort of day to day? Do you motivate each other? How do you how The do you team, the team. Yeah. I think I, I do this for the team. I, I look forward to going to the office in the morning um, and seeing them all. And like, there's a real energy. We're just building exciting things. So it's kind of exciting to be moving forward with those. And things that sort of statistically are being proven to be doing good, right? That must be hugely satisfying. Yeah, so London, obviously TfL, before they commissioned anything, have to do an awful lot of testing. And before they commissioned the laser lights for the fleet, they did 12 weeks of research with a transport research laboratory who tests you know, seatbelts and helmets and all the rest. And they did a 12-week study testing how effective a bike was with and without a laser light in different light conditions, on different road surfaces, around buses, vans, cars lorries, the works, interviewing bus drivers and submitted a 92-page document that basically said, yeah, this works. And the statistics in that like the laser light decreases the blind spot of a bus by over 25%, the van by nearly 30 and a bike with a laser light in pitch black is more visible to a driver than a bike without one in broad daylight. So that was really awesome because that was kind of an independent body. We weren't allowed to be involved. It was quite nerve-wracking but very grateful for the data out the back of it. What kind of anecdotal feedback have you had from actual people on actual bikes with laser lights just saying, you know, yeah, I felt more safe, I was more visible, those kind of stories? He's done a bit kind of um, speaking to our kind of customer base and hearing stories. And um, there's one which sticks out in my mind, which is um, a chap called David Winter, who's kind of become a very good friend of the company. And he's got a, a story where he was cycling along 
he's a very keen cyclist. He cycles out at the weekends and is, is pretty speedy and you know, knows his, he's very comfortable on his bike in the city. Um, and he was, wasn't going that fast, but he was going along a, a straight road and he suddenly raised right in front of him a, a big 4x4 was pulling out of the side junction. And he could actually see the woman driving had her head in the basically in the footwell of the opposite side. She was bending down, picking something up and just wasn't looking. And she pulled out and he obviously braked as hard as he could. He saw her look up and see the laser and clearly jammed on the brakes and then looked a little bit further up and saw saw him, saw David. But he's convinced that if she hadn't seen the laser and stopped that fraction of a second earlier, as it was, she scraped by, missed him by millimetres. I have no idea if that was what would have happened, but he seems to think that, that would have it would have been a different situation. And have you heard anything from, from drivers? Do you get reaction from those big lorry drivers? Yeah, so when TfL did their testing, they um, 78% of bus drivers said it was going to help them spot a cyclist. Um, I've certainly had, I can remember the early days when it was quite new, you know, a cabbie pull up at the traffic lights and go, oh, I like that light. That's clever. Um, when a cabbie says they like something, <laughs> you should literally have that like top line on your website. We're going to have like a marketing campaign of like yeah, <laughs> yeah. from cabbies. But the most obvious use case, and I hear from lots of anecdotes and lots from friends actually, even walking around the city is pedestrians. And a pedestrian looking down at their mobile phone with their earphones in, see that projection before they see the bike and stops them stepping out. What was it like when TfL came knocking? Or did you go to them? How did that come about? That was, so the consumer version, the first, the, the laser-like core, I've been shipping around the world for about 18 months or so. And I'd spent those 18 months, you know, all my mates going, um, you know, I was thinking about you the other day. Do you know what you should do? You should get your um, laser thingy on, you know, the, the Boris bikes. I was like, oh, thanks, great. I'd love to, sure. Just go make that happen. And we did. We spoke to TfL quite early and they said, thanks, but no thanks. It was too early. You know, we, we hadn't proven ourselves yet, I guess. And then Serco, who actually operate the bikes and run the London scheme, literally went on the website, got the office number and picked up the phone and said, hey, guys, we'll let the innovation really come in for a meeting. And that's how it all started. And how do you kind of brace yourself for that kind of thing? I mean, you, you seem very confident. You believe in your product. Do you have trouble with going in on those kind of, <clears throat> here I am, you know, this could be a big moment for our business? No, I love those moments. They're the, best, they're the best moments. They're the best moments. But it was a complicated one to navigate and still is because it's, you've got Serco who operate the scheme, TfL who own it and it's their transport system, and then Santander who sponsor it. So there's three stakeholders, all have got very different motivations for why they want something. So that's a um, learning curve in itself, really. Yeah. How do you manage the relationship between the three? Making sure they all think it's their idea. <laughs> that's golden. That is a golden piece of advice. No, they're brilliant. And, and Santander have been fantastic because they're excited to be adding innovation and be adding value. And they've done some crazy stuff with us. And we're launching the new bike. So the new bike is about to go on the street which is really exciting. And it's a completely different bike. It's Pashley, an old school heritage frame manufactured on the frame. And then we have done the lights, laser, GPS, Bluetooth, sensors, all the tech. Congratulations. How exciting. What has been the most rewarding moment in your journey with Blaze? Oh, blimey. What was it like when you first saw that green laser on the streets of London? Yes, first thing the laser light. I mean, there, again, there was a long period of time where the consumer version... Everybody in the team had seen one in the wild. I mean, multiple times. I mean, somebody had even written in and seen three in a day. And I still hadn't seen one. And I, you know, I bike, I'm on a bike for about an hour a day in the city every day. And I still hadn't seen My team are like, are you cycling around with your eyes closed, Emily? How have you not seen one? And they'd all come in really smugly. Like, oh, so it's like last night, like, shut up, I haven't seen one. And they were then convinced, and I was pretty convinced, the first time I would see somebody, I'd leap off my bike onto their bike and knock them off and cause an accident. <laughs> but thankfully that didn't happen. But you no, know, the first time I did see it. Do you remember where you were? 
Yeah, well, there was two because one was actually ended up being a friend, which wasn't quite so cool, and then the other one was a, was a stranger. I also vividly remember seeing the first laser light off the production line. I was out in China, done about five trips that year, figuring out supply chain and manufacturing, and the final trip was going to be signing off the golden sample of the very first laser light. And I'd also really wanted to see the packaging and all that kind of stuff. And the laser lights were in testing and I wasn't allowed to kind of see them yet. The packaging wasn't ready. And they said they had to wait for the end of the week and I could see them. And meanwhile, I wanted to go and see the testing facility and see what that looked like. And walked in this room and there's all these big equipment testing, vibration, drop temperature, humidity, all this kind of thing. It looks like a big fridge and I'm walking up to it. And I hadn't clicked. And of course, in the testing facility, there would be the final product because that is what they're testing. And in this fridge with a big glass front with all these little laser lights on stalks, kind of like stacked up and it was the first time seeing a final product which was very bizarre and very amazing and I had to kind of try and keep my together in front of this Chinese team who already thought oh, I was completely bizarre kind of young female CEO who's trying not to blub in front of them <laughs> completely overly emotional like breaking all the rules of like decorum in China <laughs> in one fell swoop very exciting though <laughs> oh well congratulations and uh, thank you so much for coming on Dare to Try no worries thank you for having me Dare to Try is a Tata production. To learn more about how Tata supports innovation and entrepreneurs, follow us on Twitter at Tata Europe.